0: that are envisioned here Uh, the first uh, two verses refers to uh, those that are on the inside looking out and uh, verse 3 refers to those who have been on the outside looking in and he says uh, just a a very uh, elementary thing to those that are on the inside looking out he says I have two requests of you first that you maintain justice that is you uh do what's fair to others, and secondly, that you do what's right, play fair, and do what's right. It's so simple. Uh, even a child uh, understands those commands. And As a matter of fact, that's the sort of thing that we say to our children all the time. They get into a squabble over some game, and we say, all right, kids, play fair and do what's right. We don't even have to always tell them what it means to play fair or what it means to do right because we know. There is a law that's written on our hearts and uh, we know what it is to treat people justly and fairly and, and to do what's right. It's all very simple, but uh, the problem is how, how do you do it? How do you maintain fairness and how do you keep on doing what's right toward, uh, toward people? That's, that's the tough one. And what I want to say is that these commands can only be addressed to those who are who are on the inside, those that are in a covenant relationship with God. Now, remember the the sequence of Isaiah. In Isaiah 53, we're given a picture of the suffering servant who came to save, and then in chapter 55, we're given this wonderful invitation to come to Him. All that and are heavy laden, all that are hungry and thirsty, come and eat and, and drink of, of him. And remember Isaiah said, if you do so, he'll put you in the same covenant that David enjoyed. David was told that one of his sons would be his savior, and he believed that simple fact. He looked forward, he looked on, he focused on to the Messiah that was his son who would come. And like David, we look back, we look back to that Messiah who came as our savior, and when we believe what God has said about that one that he is indeed the lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world we're placed into a covenant relationship with David and with with Abraham and with Isaac and with all the saints of of all ages and it's only out of that relationship that it's possible for us to maintain justice and do what uh, what's right because he's the one that softens our will he's the one that gives us the power and the capacity to do what we, what we know we ought to do. Now a lot of people get that confused. They think that uh, it's by maintaining justice and doing good that we render God favorable toward us. But that's legalism. It doesn't work in the first place. And secondly, it makes life so onerous and, and difficult. Uh, there's no way that we can please God by, by doing what's right. The, the witness of the Old and New Testament is that the relationship comes first. And out of that relationship becomes the fruit of our uh, uh, of righteousness. Uh, that's always the order. You go back to the law, Exodus 20, where the law is, uh, is delineated for us, the Ten Commandments. And uh, people say, "Well, that's what we have to do. We have to keep the law." But they don't read chapter 19. Chapter 19 is this wonderful eagle-wing speech that that Moses made, where he describes God as a mother eagle who swoops down under us and picks us up. He says, "I have born," he says to Israel, "I've borne you on my wings, uh, as a mother eagle bears her young." And uh, he's describing. His effort to be gracious toward Israel as she made her way down in towards Sinai. And, and uh, you get this wonderful picture of enablement and, and compassion and love and strengthening. It's out of that relationship that the, that the Ten Commandments were given. Because it's only when we know God and it's only when we have him dwelling within us. It's only when we have the, the Holy Spirit present in our lives that we're capable of of maintaining uh, justice and and doing what's right. We won't always uh, get it right, but as he puts it, my salvation is close at hand, and my righteousness will soon be revealed. He's referring here in this culture to the return from exile, what the Jews call the El the going up, the going back up to Jerusalem. This was their salvation. Their, this was the manifestation of God's righteousness. But we, uh, we look forward to another going up that's our being received into the Lord's presence, and as Paul puts it, that day is closer than when we first began. Uh, for those of us that are closer to the end of our life than the beginning, that's uh, that's an enormous comfort to know that that we're not going to have to uh, we're not going to have to struggle much longer. Before too long, He's going to come back, or we're going to go to be with Him, and then all of our our uh, all of our suffering, all of our pain—it's all going to be—it's going to be over, and we'll receive a full measure of justice, and we'll be able to give it, and we'll receive a full measure of righteousness, and we'll—we'll we'll be able to give it. See. But you have to understand, this—this this passage has to do with what those that are in covenant relationship with God can do. Now uh, we come to the beatitude in, in verse two. Oh, the blessedness! Oh, the happiness! It's the same word that's used in in, in, in Psalm one. Oh, the happiness of the person who does not uh, uh, w- uh, does not walk in the way of the sinful, or stand in the way of of uh, rebels, or sit in the seat of the scornful. Oh, the blessedness! The happiness of the person who doesn't associate with those that are in rebellion against, against God. Oh, the happiness of the man who does this, the man who holds it fast, who keeps the Sabbath without desecrating it and keeps his hand from doing any evil. And you say, aha, I knew that in the Old Testament there was a, there was law embedded and, and expected. And so he finally got around to it. It's a matter of keeping the Sabbath. Even if you're in covenant relationship, you have to keep the the uh, seventh day of the week and keep it sacred and holy and not work on that on that day. But you have to understand that both in the Old Testament and the New Testament, the Sabbath law was a symbol of a greater reality. And men and women of faith in the Old Testament and, and certainly in the New Testament where the revelation became much more clear, they understood the reality of that uh, of that symbol. Now, it's explained for us in, in the Old Testament, but, but often it's not clearly perceived. There are still people that, that feel that they have to keep the Sabbath in a separate way, in a special way. Even though Paul, as Paul puts it in Colossians, every day is the same. You can worship on Tuesday morning or Thursday afternoon or Friday night. The day is unimportant. It's just important to, to, have, to have that rest available to you in that time of, of worship. But uh, the Old Testament makes it clear that there is a greater reality found in that, in that symbol. I turn back to Exodus 20, where the, the Sabbath law is given. Verse 8. So this is a little excursus here in understanding the Old Testament. Remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Now, the first thing you notice is that uh, the Sabbath day was not anything new. It was uh, an occasion to be remembered. Uh, the Sabbath goes all the way back to creation. God created in six days, and on the seventh day, he, he rested. He took a break. And evidently, that idea was widely known, not just in Israel, but throughout the ancient world. In Babylonian calendars, for example, on the seventh day, there's a little red marker around it the last day of the week. Uh, scholars refer to it as a rubric. And uh, you find that in all their calendars. You say, well, obviously, you know, they operated off of the lunar calendar. And uh, you know, they had the same weeks that we had. Yeah, that's true, but why the seventh day? See, Why was the seventh day special? Well, because embedded in their memory is this idea that the seventh day is indeed special. And even Abraham and uh, Enoch and the other people that walked with God in the Old Testament apparently had some understanding of what what the Sabbath was, and they they made that a very special day. Remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Holy just means special, unique. It's set apart. Sanctify it in that sense. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it... You shall not do any work, neither you nor your son or daughter, nor your manservant or maidservant, nor your animals, nor the alien within your gates. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea, and all that is in them. But he rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord enriched, he blessed the seventh, the Sabbath day, and he made it special. See? Now let me show you one other passage. Uh, keep turning uh, through Exodus to chapter 31. And he tells us uh, what, what this day signifies. It, it's, it's a special day, he says. Honor it. Respect it. Don't take it lightly. Verse 12, Exodus 31. The Lord said to Moses, Say to the Israelites, You must observe my Sabbaths. This will be a sign between me and you for the generations to come. Now this is what it, it, what it symbolizes follow his argument carefully so you may know that I am the Lord who makes you holy in other words holiness is a god is a job for god see we we cannot make ourselves holy the only way to be holy is to rest in god's work in the work that he's done in the cross that wonderful forgiveness for the for the past and and uh, uh, freedom from guilt, but also what he's presently doing. He's at work both to will and to do of his good pleasure in us. He, he's teaching us what it means to be just. He's teaching us what it means to be right, uh, to be righteous and to do what's, what's right. He's at work in us so we can rest. Now, you see, that was the whole point of the Sabbath. They were to, to knock off uh, work one day in the... In the week, and just relax and not do any work, and their animals weren't to work. And God was very serious about this command because it was very important to get this message across to us that God does not want us to work for our salvation or our sanctification. He wants us to rest in what He is doing. And so, the way we keep our Sabbath special is uh, to uh, celebrate the Sabbath every day of the week, every week of the year. Every year of our life, we get up in the morning and we say, this is a Sabbath. I can rest in what God is, has done. And uh, when you get to the book of Hebrews in the New Testament, we won't uh, look at that passage, but you may recall it from our studies. In chapter 4, is a long-involved argument about the uh, the meaning of the Sabbath and the various Sabbaths that, that Israel experienced. And he says, this is the way he puts it, those of you who have believed have entered into rest. So that's what uh, the Sabbath signifies. It doesn't make any difference what day you worship; you can worship any day of, of the week. Paul makes that very clear in the New Testament. The day is not important. It's a, it's a mindset. It's an attitude. You see that every day is a Sabbath. Now let's go back to Isaiah fifty-six. Oh, the happiness of the man who does this! Now in Hebrew almost always uh, th- that, that phrase almost always introduces what follows not what came before blessed is the man who does this what the man who holds it fast what the Sabbath see without desecrating it's Oh, the happiness of the man or woman or the boy or, or girl who understands that we no longer have to work for our salvation we don't have to earn it we don't have to pick up the tab we don't even have to pick up the tip God has done it all you see? And our responsibility is to simply uh, enter into that rest, to choose the rest that he has provided for us. Now, that's uh, what Isaiah has to say to those that are on the inside looking out. Now he has a word to those that are uh, on the outside who are who have been on the outside looking in. Look at verse 3. Let no foreigner, stranger is, is the word, who has joined himself to the Lord, say, The Lord will surely exclude me from his people. Now, again, in, in, in that time, Isaiah's thinking of the people that were in exile. And, and there were Gentiles, strangers to the covenants and promise that had aligned themselves with Israel's uh, God. They were uh, called God-fearers. And uh, they were afraid that when Israel went back to the land, they wouldn't be included. The same be true of the eunuchs. Let not any eunuch complain, complain that I'm only a dry tree. Uh, they weren't certain that they were included among the, uh, the covenant people. They might get left behind. But now for us today, they're, uh, they're strangers. They're people on the outside. They're eunuchs. We'll talk about, uh, about that idea in a moment. But you may be thinking, I'm not sure that I really belong on the inside. Got my nose pressed against the window. I see people enjoying their relationship with God. Oh, how I wish I had that! I'm not sure that I'm on the in, on the inside. This this is what Isaiah has uh, to say uh, to you. Now, the the strangers or the foreigners here are uh, the Gentiles, the non-Jews. Uh, Jews thought of the Gentiles as irreligious types, and today it would refer to those people that you know in your office that uh, aren't particularly religiously oriented. They, they, they never darken the door of the church. They're simply not interested. And uh, that may be your past, or you may still be struggling uh, to get in on on things. You, you feel like you're, you're an outsider. You don't have the, the, the spiritual background that people have. You don't have the understanding of Scripture or knowledge that they have. Your information is incomplete, and so you don't know where you stand in terms of your... Your relationship with uh, with God. Now, we need to understand that Israel's work in the world was to announce the good news to people like that—people that were on the outside. You've heard the little uh, the little limerick, or the first line of the limerick: "How odd of God to choose the Jews." Well. How out of God to choose anybody. He could have chosen the Hottentots. He could have chosen Hungarians. He could have chosen anyone. He didn't choose the Jews because they were particularly, uh, had a particular religious bent. Uh, It was just simply a choice. He chose one man, Abraham. And from him, he made a great nation. And the reason he made that nation, as we've seen over and over again in Isaiah, is so they could be a light to the Gentiles, you see, to love those people out there, to gather those strangers in. As Isaiah puts it in Isaiah 16, weep for Moab. Moab was you know, they were uh, inveterate enemies of Israel. But Isaiah says we, you ought to be weep. You ought to weep over those people. They're on the outside. Let's go get them. Let's bring them in. Let's let's uh, uh, let's get the good news to them. See if you want an example of that uh, Abraham was the archetypical Israelite he was the first of the Israelites and he he lived we we men on Wednesday morning have been talking about Abraham I love this old fella uh, he he was over in Ur of the Chaldees and uh, you know Abraham was uh, he was a very powerful man Uh, I told the men Wednesday morning whenever I think of Abraham I always think of my Sunday school superintendent in a bathrobe but really because he used to play that part in the In uh, in, uh, Sunday school plays but uh, actually uh, Abraham was an extremely powerful wealthy man had his own army took on of all people at one point in his life and uh, he was was, uh, uh, really a very powerful man God says to him I want you to leave Ur of the Chaldees and I want you to go someplace I'm not going to tell you where it is you just follow me and I'm going to make your name great and I'm going to make a great nation out of you, and you will be a blessing wherever you go. Now, the word blessing means uh, it just means to enrich people spiritually in that context. In other words, you know, the only way to enrich people spiritually is to bring them to God. That's what he's saying. You're going to go all over the, uh, the, uh, this area that I'm, to which I'm going to send you, and you're going to bring people to God. So Abraham packs up all of his gear and his wife, and they take off, and they... Go up to Haran, and they stay up there for a while till his father dies. And then they, Haran is up in modern-day Lebanon, or actually right where Syria and Lebanon Lebanon divide. And then he went down into, into, into Canaan, darkest place on the face of the earth, grossest people spiritually you can imagine. Just awful, awful, awful religion, child sacrifice, and, and all sorts of things. Interesting passage, Genesis 12, says, Abraham came to Shechem. That's where Jesus met the woman at the well later. And uh, there was a big oak there called the Oak of Morah. Morah means teaching in Hebrew. So there was a, ba- there was a, 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 a Canaanite uh, Baal priest there. They worshiped under those big terebinths, those big, big oaks. There was a Baal sanctuary there. And uh, there were the priests of Baal and the priestesses of Asherah. And, and uh, they were carrying out their orgiastic uh, religions there, uh, worship there. And uh, it says very significantly that Abraham came to that spot, and he built an altar, and he called upon the name of the Lord, and the Canaanite was then in the land, is the way the author of Genesis puts it. And I get a picture of Abraham, just, you know, here's this Baal sanctuary, and Abraham moves over next to it, and he puts up his little pup tent, and and he gets his family settled, and he... he Walks over near the tree and he gets some rocks and he builds him a little altar and he sacrifices a lamb and and he calls on the name of the Lord, he begins to worship, and the Canaanites begin to wander over and say, What in the world are you doing? And he'd say, Well, this lamb represents the Lamb of God who someday will take away the sin of the world. See, that's what all Israelites were supposed to do. That's what all of God's people were supposed to do, to be a light. To the Gentiles, see. but what happened over the centuries is that, is that the whole thing deteriorated into nationalism and jingoism, and chauvinism, and elitism, and till the Jews just felt that you know they and they alone had the, had the truth. Uh, Isaac Watts uh, describes uh, the, the people of God as a little garden walled around, chosen of God, private ground. That, that's the way they looked at it. At their religion. We, we've got it. We're on the inside. And and I'm sorry about you, but you, you, you don't have it. You're on the outside. Now, uh, these uh, these eunuchs that are described here, let not the eunuch complain, I'm only a dry tree, were people that bore the marks of pagan religion. One of the characteristics of Baal worship was they in their frenzy, they gashed themselves with knives and they emasculated themselves for the the gods and goddesses—horrible religion—and uh, uh, in, in, in modern-day uh, uh, parlance, these are those folks that have that have wasted their lives through substance abuse, through sexual abuse, you know, too much sex and six packs, and, and they, their lives have degenerated to the point that they just—they feel like these eunuchs. Were, They've emasculated themselves. We're a dry tree. Says, No worth, no value, no meaning, no significance, no happiness in our lives. W.H. Auden has a little poem that captures uh, this idea well, I think. Faces along the bar cling to their average day. The lights must never go out. The music must always play, lest we know who we are and where we are. Lost in a haunted wood, children afraid of the dark, who have never been happy or good. And uh, you know people like that. I know people like that. Maybe you're like that. You look back on your life and all you have are bad habits and bad memories that you've picked up from uh, uh, your life and in the world. And uh, you've never been happy or good and you just don't know any way out of of your predicament. Well, Isaiah has uh, has a word for you strangers and, and eunuchs. This is what he says to those on the outside. Verse 4. This is what the Lord says. To the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths. Now we understand what Sabbath is. It's not a matter of, of Saturday observance. It's a matter of learning to rest in the work that God is doing. Who choose what pleases me. They align themselves with God and his his will, not my will, but yours be done, they say. And they hold fast to my covenant. What covenant is that? Well, it's, it's the covenant that was given to Abraham. It was the covenant that was given to David. Uh, it was the covenant that's given to us, the new covenant that was ratified by Jesus' blood. That says, you, you'll be my people and I'll be your God if you just come and rest in in what I've done. And he says to them, to them, these eunuchs, I'll give within my temple and its walls a memorial and a name. Better than sons and daughters, I will give them an everlasting name that, that will not be, uh, not be cut off. They're going to be gathered in, he says, and they'll be given a name. Doesn't make any difference how far these, any, any, anyone has gone. God knows where you are. And if you simply come to him, and, and you align yourselves with him, you agree to this great covenant which he sealed with his blood, and you accept his forgiveness, then you're gathered in, and you're given a name. And it's a, a name that he describes as an everlasting name, and I couldn't help but think of what Jesus said to his disciples. Your names, he says, are written in heaven. God knows your name, and you belong to him. You have great significance and worth because He loves you, and uh, He would die uh, again for you. Now, there are a lot of people that don't think they belong inside. It's very difficult for them to uh, to grasp that notion that they're accepted, regardless of what their past might be. And sometimes these are people who uh, seem very hostile toward toward the gospel. My experience. Is that very often people that seem to be opposed to the gospel, or people that don't understand it, and and they they feel like they want it, but they don't. They just don't see how God can could ever forgive their their past. Uh, some of you know uh, uh, Aesop's story. or You read Aesop's uh, story, the old Greek uh, storyteller who wrote a, uh, about the the fox that jumping up trying to get the grapes in the upper part of the, the grapevine. Saw a bunch of lush. Grapes, And he kept jumping and kept jumping, and, and he, he couldn't, couldn't reach that height. And so he just went away mumbling, oh, well, he said they're sour grapes anyway. And uh, that, that's where we get our expression, sour grapes, from Aesop's tale. But there are a lot of people like that that have given up on the grace of God because they think they have to, they have to jump for it. They have, they have to achieve it in some way on their own. And they don't understand that, that God simply wants to, uh, he wants to give it. One of my favorite stories in the Old Testament is the story of Mephibosheth. Uh, Mephibosheth was Jonathan's son. Jonathan was David's uh, close friend. And uh, Saul was Mephibosheth's, uh, it's a hard word to say, Mephibosheth's uh, uh, grandfather. And uh, Saul, as you know, uh, Tried to kill David a number of times. Tried to shish kebab him once with his spear when he was, when, when David was playing his uh, harp and singing to Saul. And uh, actually tried twice. And, uh, and then went after him when David was in exile in, 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 the, in the wilderness. And chased him for several years. And uh, hated David with all of his heart. Everybody in the nation knew that, that uh, David, uh, that Saul mistrusted and was jealous and hated David. And finally, both Saul and Jonathan were killed in the Battle of Gilboa. And David asked the question, is there anyone left of uh, Saul's family? They said, well, Mephibosheth, Jonathan's son, is the only one that's left. So David said, bring him here. And Mephibosheth knew what was going to happen. He said, oh, it's all over. I know, I know what my grandfather did to David, and, and, and David's going to kill me for sure. And Mephibosheth was lame. He, he had been dropped when he was a child, and his legs had been broken. And he, as the scriptures put it, he was lame in both of his feet. And uh, Mephibosheth crawled into David's presence, and he said, these were his words, I'm a dead dog. I mean, he he knew he was finished, that David was going to take him out. And uh, David looked at Mephibosheth, and he said uh, to Ziba, who was Saul's servant, all right, he says, you're in charge of all of Saul's uh, property. It now belongs to Mephibosheth. I want you to till his fields and take care of his crops, and and you take care of his animals and so forth. Then he says to Mephibosheth, Mephibosheth, you're going to eat at my table for the rest of your life. I have a friend that, that preaches a sermon on that passage and he entitles it, and the tablecloth covered his feet. I love that. You know, here's a man who, who was lame in both of his feet, and and David just graciously took him in, covered up covered up his his uh, flaws and his failures and, and his past and and just loved him for who he was. And and that's the way God does us. And that's hard to believe. It's hard to accept. But when you you come to his table, his tablecloth covers covers your feet. Now, um, here's a word uh, for the foreigners. Verse 6, the foreigners who bind themselves to the Lord, that is by covenant again, to serve him and to love the name of the Lord and to worship him. here's, Here's our Sabbath ordinance again, all who keep the Sabbath without desecrating it and who hold fast to my covenant. See, here's an interesting place where the Hebrew parallelism really helps you to interpret interpret a passage because keeping the Sabbath is holding fast to the covenant. What's the covenant? Well, it's not Mosaic covenant. It's not the law. It's that promise that he made to Abraham. I'm going to bless the whole world through you, see. When people believe what Abraham preached, then they come into covenant with Abraham and with David and with everyone else in the Old Testament who had that that sort of faith, and they rest in what God has done for them. These, he says, these I will bring to my holy mountain. They're not going to be excluded anymore. They're not going to be outsiders. And give them joy in my house of prayer. That's a reference to the temple. Their burnt offerings and sacrifices will be accepted on on my altar when they bring uh, that little lamb which for us is that lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world we, we bring that offering into the Lord and we say this is our basis of acceptance and he, and he says that's right that that's acceptable on my, on my altar their burnt offerings and sacrifices will be accepted on my altar for my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations Jews Gentile, insiders, outsiders. My house will be called a house of prayer for all people. The sovereign Lord declares, he who gathers the outcasts of Israel. That is, he's talking here about those that are on the inside, God's people, Israel. But I will gather still others to them. That's the foreigners, the strangers, the eunuchs, the Gentiles. Besides those already gathered, and uh, your mind immediately goes to what Jesus said in John 10 about his sheep. He's talking about Israel. He says, my sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me, and I give unto them eternal life, and they will never perish. I have other sheep, he says, who are not of this fold. I must go seek them, he said. That's us. We Gentiles got in on this this tremendous arrangement for living that, that, that God made. And, and we continue to get on, get in on it by faith, not by keeping the law, but by resting in what God is, has already done. Uh, let me read something from the book of Ephesians. Uh, you may turn to it if you'd like. It's chapter 2. I don't know how I could prevent you from turning to it anyway. <clears throat> Verse 11, remember that formerly you were Gentiles by birth and called uncircumcised. This is verse 11, by those who call themselves the circumcision, that is the Jews, called the Gentiles uncircumcised. Uh, That circumcision that is done in the body by the hands of men. The New Testament is very clear that real circumcision is in the heart. God cuts off the flesh, that is the old pattern of, of life. That's the reality which circumcision symbolized. Uh, he says, remember at the time you were separate from Messiah. Uh, Christ in the New Testament is just the, the, Christos is the Greek equivalent of the Hebrew word Mashiach, Messiah. Uh, remember that at time you were separate from Messiah, excluded from citizenship in Israel, and foreigners in the covenants of, of the promise, without hope and without God in the world, but now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far away have been brought near. Through the blood of Christ. The blood of Christ is the instrument that brought us near. So it doesn't make a difference how far out we are. On the basis of the blood of Christ. We're brought in. We, we begin to share. with all of the in, in all of the blessings of Israel. In fact, Galatians. Paul and Galatians go so far as to call us sons of Abraham. You're his seed, he says. You are his son. So not nationally. Not eth- ethnically. But But spiritually, by faith, we become sons of Abraham and we get in this line of of promise that began in the garden and continues on until the end of, of human history. Verse 14. He himself, that is, our Lord Jesus, is our peace. He has made the two, that is, Jew and Gentile. One, and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, by abolishing in his flesh the law with its commands and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new man out of the two, thus making peace, and in this one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross, by which he put to death their hostility. He came and pre- he came and preached peace to you who were far away, and peace to those who were near. Incidentally, that's a quotation from Isaiah 57, the very next uh, chapter, where he expands on this idea of, of the Gentiles being brought in. For through him we both... That is, Jew and Gentile both have access to the Father by one Spirit. And that's why Paul can say that there's no difference between Jew or Gentile or male or female or barbarian or, or cultivated person. You know, all of those, uh, those differences don't make any difference anymore. Everybody comes on the same basis. They come and, and they rest. They find rest. You know, I read this this last week, and and uh, this this idea of uh, bringing us into my holy mountain and, and and giving us joy in his house of prayer, and then his statement, "My my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations," and and for the first time, an event in the New Testament makes made sense to me. I don't know why it takes so long sometimes for me, but the coin dropped. And I realized what was going on in Matthew 21 when Jesus cleansed the temple. What it, This is what happened. I, I realized there was a quotation in the New Testament. So I went to that passage in Matthew 21 where Jesus quotes that verse. My house will be a house of prayer for all nations, he says. And suddenly the the coin dropped. You remember what happened? It was the Passover. This will just take a moment and we're done. It was the Passover. Uh, Millions, I mean literally millions of people gathered in Jerusalem, pilgrims from all over the Roman world. Uh, uh, They know that something like a quarter of a million lambs were sacrificed during that time. So given the fact that usually uh, you could assume one lamb for ten people, it it must have been two and a half million people gathered in in Jerusalem. That's a lot of people twice Two and a half times, really, the uh, population of, uh, of Idaho. And uh, they're all gathered in, in Jerusalem for this great festival spread all over the place. I mean, miles and miles and miles of tents and people. And Jesus comes to Jerusalem. You know, this, is his, this is his moment. This is his hour. Jews from all over the world are gathered. Probably representatives from most of the Jewish families and, and Gentile uh, proselyte. God-fearing families throughout the Roman Empire. This this is his hour. Now he can make a splash. You remember what he did? I mean, he just embarrassed his disciples to death. Uh, Alexander rode into Jerusalem on his big war horse, Bucephalus. Jesus rode into Jerusalem on a little flop-eared, sad-faced donkey with his feet dragging the ground. He did so because Zechariah predicted that he would he would come into Jerusalem like that. But he also did so as just a sign that his kingdom was not of this world; that he really was not aligning himself with Alexander and Cyrus and the other rulers of the ancient world. I guess if it happened today, he would pull up to our parking lot in a nineteen, a black dented nineteen forty nine Volkswagen. You know, the kind with a little window in the back. something would fall off when he slammed the door and uh, it just you know as disciples thought you know, this is your moment why didn't you do something or, you know we call it the triumphal entry it's a wonderful irony in those in that in that title nothing triumphant about that entry it came lowly riding on a donkey And he walks into the temple. Now, you have to understand what the temple was like in that day. It was one of the architectural wonders of the world. Herod had had embellished the temple in order to appease the Jews, and it was just a marvelous complex of buildings, courts, walls. And uh, there's a big wall on the outside, and that was the wall, that was the court of the Gentiles. The Gentiles had to stay a couple of hundred feet away from the temple. There was a big wall. They couldn't even see over it. They could see the top of the temple, but there was a wall between them and the rest of the worshiping community. Inside the inner community, the, the clergy had access to the temple. The, the Jewish men were able to gather in the next court. Jewish women had to gather in the outer court. By the way, so, uh, some uh, BSU student or other student here would be an interesting uh, paper to write sometime on class consciousness in Israel during Jesus' day and use the temple as an example. It's a wonderful example of how they looked at the rest of the world. What really matters is the clergy and uh, the next group are men, and then the women are way out on the perimeter, and then the Gentiles are way on the other side of the wall. By the way, I think that's what Paul had in mind when he when he used the, the symbol of walls in Ephesians 2 because the wall, the temple was still standing in Paul's day. It would have stood until 70 A.D. when Titus tore it down. But uh, when Paul said God tore down the walls, they would understand what he's talking about. Because if you were a Gentile, you couldn't see anything going. You could see the smoke coming up from the, from the offerings, but you couldn't see inside. You were on the outside looking in. See? Incidentally, when Titus did tear it down, God made his point very clearly that the walls no longer exist. And uh, that, that was the structure. Well, anyway, the, the, the money changers... And the people that sold doves were out in the court of the Gentiles. And here's what happened. When the Gentiles came, they had to pay a temple tax of a half shekel. And the authorities, the clergy in there, would not accept any other money except except the temple half shekel, which was a high-grade silver coin. So they had to exchange their money for that shekel, and they charged exorbitant exchange rates, like three for one. When they went to buy doves, they normally they brought doves. Particularly poor people would bring doves from their own home, but uh, the priests would expect them. And by the way, you, uh, people, uh, rabbis and others living during this day have documented the fact, this is the truth, they'd look at these doves and they would disqualify them almost universally because they wanted to sell their doves. So they'd have to let their doves go, and uh, uh, good for the doves, bad for the worshiper, because then the worshiper would have to pay three or four times the normal price of a dove and what they were doing was ripping people off in the temple. Gentiles. And that's what made Jesus so mad. That's what infuriated him. That's the other side of Jesus. You know, know, the children's song, gentle, little Jesus, gentle, mild. Boy, that that was a day when he was anything but gentle and mild. He made a, a whip out of Rawhide, And he went through that place tipping over tables, and laying the lash on people. And you know, he was infuriated. And then he said to them, and, and this is the quote from Isaiah. He says, God intended this place to be a house of prayer for all nations. And you've made it into a den of thieves. And, and then we're told, uh, I think it's Mark that tells us, that he stopped them from carrying anything through the temple. In other words, he shut the worship down. He shut it down. And then we're told that uh, that the lame and the blind and others began to gather around him, and he healed them. So he transformed that place into a house of prayer for all all nations. Now, that, you see, that gives you some idea of, of the righteous wrath of God. It infuriates him when people cannot find their way to the love of God. And, uh, he's outraged whenever we, uh, we keep people away from the love of God. You know, I would not want to be in your shoes if you're turning your children off to the Lord Jesus, if you're telling them that He's not the Savior. Oh, I shudder to think what that would be like. We all make inadvertent mistakes. We don't always manifest the character of Christ in our homes. I'm not talking about that. But deliberate efforts to turn children away from the love of God is serious, serious sin. I would not want to be in your shoes when you stand before God. Uh, Our Lord was was outraged by what they were doing. We should be when people are, are kept away from the love of God. Now, uh, I want to say uh, just a couple of things in conclusion. Uh, For those who are on the outside, God wants to gather you in. I hope that message has come across loud and clear this morning. He wants you. It doesn't make any difference how sinful you may be or what you've done with your life. He wants to bring you into his holy uh, place. And uh, he wants to love you like you've never been, been loved before. And then I want to say a word to those of us that are on the inside, not because we're any better than anybody else, but simply because we have, we have exercised that Sabbath rest, we, we have entered into, into his rest. If Jesus were to pull into our parking lot this morning and peek into our service, or worse yet, peek into our hearts, what would he find? Would he find people that are stranger-friendly? People that are reaching out to those that are in need, or would he find uh, the kind of elitism and and uh, chauvinism that characterized the, the Jews of uh, of Jesus Day? What what would he find? I uh, I love that story of of Zacchaeus, uh, sawed off, pompous, proud little man who climbed up in a tree to see Jesus and. And uh, Jesus says to him, he spotted him in the tree. And he says, Zacchaeus, come down. I'm going to have lunch with you today. And invited himself over to Zacchaeus' house for lunch, and that that gave Jesus a terrible reputation. He was known from that time on as the friend of, of sinners because Zacchaeus invited all of his rasty friends from all over town, and they gathered. and And uh, the, the, the clergy looked askance at all of that, you know. But uh, the Lord looked around that table and He loved those those people, and and He looks around at this body and and He sees all sorts of people, and He loves them all, and they're our kind of people. You see, once you come into into His family, you can't choose your companions anymore. We don't have the right to choose uh, the members of of His body. He chooses them. Doesn't make any difference uh, what they look like or how well or educated or how poorly educated they are or how they vote those differences don't make any differences anymore we may disagree with one another but we, we've we've got to welcome them in say got to receive them in CT uh, stud said i some like to live within the sound of church and chapel bell i want to i want to build a rescue house within a yard of hell and i hope that's the focus of this church that we don't want to just close up on one another and have a nice friendly warm place where we can we can love each other, but we're, our doors are open to all kinds of people who come, who come seeking the love of God. Let's uh, let's pray. Stand, please, with me.